0: Countdown. Three, two, one. This is the Contracting Experience. Connecting government contracting professionals to the world around them through conversations with acquisition influencers, insights into evolving hot topics, and sharing lessons learned from the field.
1: Greetings, contracting professionals. I want to hear about your contracting experience on the Contracting Experience podcast. Send me an email and tell me about an experience that you've had that has impacted your program, organization, or your personal development. The topic is up to you. So you can tell me about something you or your acquisition team did that was innovative, a process you created or removed to do business better, or even a failure that you experienced and that you learned from. If your experience is chosen, you could be recording your own story for an episode of The Contracting Experience Podcast. This call is open to any of you government contracting folks out there that want to share your story. Email me at thecontractingexperience at gmail.com and give me a synopsis of your story in a couple paragraphs. On this episode of The Contracting Experience Podcast, we sit down with Joyce Pappas, who is an industrial security program manager for the Headquarters Air Force Material Command Information Protection Office. Does industrial security seem intimidating or confusing? What is a DD-254 and when should you have one in your contract? What resources can you go to for help regarding industrial security issues? Joyce does a great job answering these questions as well as demystifying what industrial security is and why it is important for acquisition professionals to understand how it impacts their contracts. Welcome Joyce Pappas to the podcast we appreciate you sitting down with us to talk about industrial security and why it is important um, for contracting professionals to understand industrial security thank you for having me so joyce you are currently working in policy for the air force material command information protection office however you have been involved in different facets of industrial security throughout your career Can you give us insight into your background? So initially I began in the security
0: career field working as a civilian for the Army. I performed duties in a variety of security-related functions to include information, physical security, foreign disclosure, security education and training, and OPSEC. At that particular time, I was not involved too much in industrial security. But like anything else, you move on, you change careers. And eventually, I went on to working for an organization called the Defense Security Service specializing in the field of industrial security so defense security service from now on i'll reference to as dss you know we work for the dod so we love acronyms right so dss has the mission of protecting classified information in the hands of industry for that particular position i was in the field and worked with defense contractors i worked with them during the beginning of the facility clearance process to the end of the facility clearance process and everything in between a sampling of industrial security related duties included processing contractor reported security violations, conducting inspections. This includes companies large and small, performed oversight actions, and provided a variety of advice and assistance uh, typical actions to contractors. Currently, I work for Headquarters Air Force Material Command as the AFMC Industrial Security Program Manager. So nowadays, I went from working in the field to now being at a headquarters element working in a policy position, right? Some of my duties involve providing policy interpretation for the MAGCOM, reviewing processes to identify administrative burdens, analyzing standardization needs, identifying areas for improved training opportunities, and of course, processing notifications received through SAF AAZ, that originate from DSS regarding contractors performing on classified contracts. These include anything from security violations to facility clearance issues such as invalidations or intent to revoke. So you can see I started with the Army doing a plethora of things, right? I I used to call myself the multi-purpose cleaner all the way to now I'm specialized. So I am now narrowed industrial security, but that background with the Army provided me that foundation to help me in the job I do today.
1: Well, I appreciate you running through that. And um, I think I I like that you mentioned the receiving notifications from DSS, because I know Back in the day as a contracting officer, I had received notifications about maybe some of the subs on my contracts and I was like, what do I do with this? <laughs> so, um, so now I know I go get in contact with my security um, specialist and, and they can help me work it um, with the program team on how it needs to be addressed. So I appreciate that. Um, so can you tell us what is industrial security and why is it important for contracting personnel to understand how it impacts their programs?
0: So, really, to understand industrial security, it is important to understand what the National Industrial Security Program really is. So, we refer to the National Industrial Security Program as the NISP. The NISP was founded by executive order back in 1993 and entails a partnership between the federal government and industry. Membership in the NISP is voluntary and applies to all executive branch departments, agencies, and contractor facilities located within the continental United States, its territories, and possessions. So that everyone is on the same page, a contractor that is participating in the NISP is also referred to as a cleared contractor facility. As a contracting officer or contracting acquisition professionals, you may hear the term facility, cleared contractor facility, Those are identifiers and sometimes buzzwords, right, of those participating in the NISP. So this all leads and sets the foundation for what is industrial security. There's a textbook definition, like everything else, in that industrial security is an element of the security enterprise to ensure the safeguarding of classified information when it is in the possession of United States industrial organizations, educational institutions, and organizations or facilities used by contractors. So that's your textbook definition, right? But then let's get to the real world, because the real world's always different from textbook. First you have the application of the specialty. This helps develop a sense of what it really means to practice industrial security. So contractors are the ones performing unclassified contracts and must adhere to all established policy procedures in order to protect our classified information. You could consider them the practitioners of industrial security. Then you have what's referred to as the government contracting agency. And I don't know if the acquisition community has heard this phrase. Also the acronyms commonly referred to as GCA. But the GCA, also known as the government customer, and in our case, also known as United States Air Force, is the originator of the classified information, of the classified requirements. Think of us as the source. We issue the classified contracts, provide contractors with necessary security requirements to protect our information. Then you have what I unofficially call the boots on the ground. These are the individuals that practice, shall I say, pure industrial security. The Department of Defense is considered one of the cognizant security agencies participating in the NISP that I mentioned earlier. Security oversight on behalf of the DOD is assigned to the Defense Security Service, also DSS. For the DOD, DSS is the agency that provides oversight for all cleared contractor facilities. They process, Facility clearance, provide advice and assistance, and partner with industry and government stakeholders. As you can tell, the DSS explanation is part of the duties that I was involved in before coming to AFMC. So all in all, contractors, GCA's, aka the Air Force, and DSS all come together to
1: implement the true form of industrial security. So what is a classified contract and why is it important to incorporate security classification guides into classified contracts? That is a great question.
0: Because classified
1: contracts, everyone thinks
0: that maybe they know what it is, but when you get down to the particulars, sometimes it could become confusing. So a classified contract is any contract requiring access to classified information by a contractor in the performance of the contract. Now as an acquisition professional you could ask yourself what makes a classified contract in your contracting world? On a very basic level, a contract must incorporate that FAR clause, as I call it the money clause 52.204-02. That is the clause that every contract must have in it that shows that it is in fact a classified contract. Now classified contract requirements are applicable to all phases pre-contract activity including solicitations which could include your bids, quotations, proposals, pre-contract negotiations, post-contract activity, or other GCA program or project which requires access to classified information. To answer the second part of your question, yes security classification guides are important. Foot stomp on the yes. These are documents that ultimately provide the contractor guidance as to what is classified and what is not. It is imperative these documents are included in the contract so that the contractor knows exactly what type of information is classified and what type of protection measures are needed to
1: protect such information. So you had mentioned um, the FAR Clause uh, 52.204-2, which is security requirements. So this clause, as you mentioned, is required in um, solicitations and contracts, when the contract may require access to classified information. So, and just to give the listener some context of when you might need to use this clause. Um, in a previous job that I had, um, my team they needed to update the security classification guide on the DD 254, and uh, so they they worked with the the prime contractor, but it was the subcontractor that actually needed access to that classified information. And they were getting some pushback on updating that. Um, they sat down with them and tried to understand uh, what you know what the issues were. But ultimately, um, the sub was saying there was going to be significant increased cost to do that. Some some months went by, and we still did not see, you know, exactly what those what those increased costs were going to be, and they were not substantiated. So, so the team went forward and said, okay, let's we need to take a look at how we're going to get this. Um, this revised security classification guide or updated security classification guide onto the contract because this needs to be implemented um, to make sure that we were um, protecting that classified information in an appropriate way. So the team sat down and um, they worked with their their legal, their, their technical folks to understand what potential cost impacts there could be in their finance as far as funds availability if needed. Um, and they they said we also sat down with leadership to let them know that you know there's a potential we may have to invoke this clause unilaterally um, if the if the contractor does not want to sign up to um, the updated security classification guide that needs to be on the contract um, but that we would prefer to do it bilaterally with both of the parties signing up to it that way everybody understands what they're signing up to Um, and so we we talked with our, our working-level team on the contractor's end, and then we informed our leadership of, that, of um, you know, those options. And then they had discussions with the contractor's leadership, which that kind of helped move the needle a little bit so that we were able to actually update the security classification guide um, using the clause and we were we did it bilaterally so the contractor signed up to it as well as we did so um, So I just wanted to give folks out there an example of how they may need to use this clause at some point um, and that you know definitely always pull in your um, Your security team on, on questions like this um, in case you're not sure um, What implications are and and the issues that are out there that surround the security classification guide and its importance to the contract?
0: Absolutely, and and one thing to keep in mind through that entire process is think about why this information is classified. You know, one person, you cannot say that that water bottle, that's top secret. It doesn't quite work that way. That is why we have original classification authorities, why these security classification guides are drafted, but if there's a change to a guide or maybe a new guide comes into play, it really comes back to there's important information that needs protected. It's now going to be in the hands of industry. Industry is obligated to protect some of in that information, essentially, right? So by going through this process and, and choosing either the bilateral route or the unilateral route, it is really solely important to keep close hold that they are working on classified. They have to protect it. And if there's something that's preventing that from happening, then there's a risk there there's a risk to their their information because, for example, I use that water bottle reference, but let's just say that water bottle is now top secret. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you know it's being protected in industry if they're not abiding by the classification guide or won't be accepted? And whenever there's changes to classification guidance, changes have to be made to that that form that probably all of you are familiar with, hopefully, is the DD Form 254. Mm -hmm. So, that guide and that form, they play hand in hand with each other to give
1: that contractor guidance and direction. So that leads to my next question. So what is a DD Form 254, and what type of information should be on the DD 254?
0: Essentially, the DD Form 254 is a Department of Defense contract security classification specification requirements document. If you mention the numbers 254, An industrial security professional will know immediately what you are talking about. So the 254 is considered a contractual document that is to be incorporated into all classified contracts. This form communicates security requirements to the defense contractor through various items, both on the form and through addendums to the form. Sometimes a 254 is classified, though most of the time it is an unclassified document. I should note that a classified 254 is the exception and not the rule. So as mentioned before, whenever security requirements change on a contract, the DD Form 254 is to be revised, re-coordinated, and placed back on the contract. A change in requirements could involve a change in facility clearance needed. So for example, you had a secret contract, and now the program office is telling you, you know what, we need up to a top secret contract. No problem. Go through the process. Change the DD Form 254 or there could be a classified storage requirement. Maybe previously the contractor did not need to store classified on site, but now the program office needs them to have classified documents or needs them to have a classified information system, testing equipment, whatever you want to call it. The form has to be revised. Now, within the Air Force, a DD Form 254 originates at the program office. It could go through multiple levels of coordination depending on the security requirements, of course. For example, SEP, SCI, maybe some information protection coordination. It is ultimately certified by a contracting officer or designee. And I want to really focus about the designee portion of that statement because recently that is a change in Air Force policy. Before the summer 2018, Only contracting officers could certify DD Form 254 in the Air Force. Industrial security policy was updated so that now that contracting officer, they can delegate that duty to someone. And that was really geared to match FAR requirements because the FAR allows you to designate and delegate. So why not? Why can't security policy do the same thing? Why can't we work together? And with that update, it is important to realize, as we'll say contracting officers are probably on the line, that if you do designate this responsibility, it is a contracting officer's responsibility to ensure that that person has adequate training, knows what they're certifying, not that you're giving an intern right. <laughs> this delegation to say, okay, hey, can you sign these 15 DD Form 254s because they're due at two o'clock today, oh, it's 1.30 and this person, all they've done all day is read Rex or, or do something completely unrelated. So it is, it is something that can be delegated, but we always say, make sure it's
1: delegated to the correct person. So you had mentioned facility clearances, Um, so must a defense contractor have a facility clearance prior to being awarded a classified contract? And if the contractor does not have a facility clearance, how does it obtain one? So speaking purely from the policy perspective,
0: the short answer to your question is no. A contractor does not have to have a facility clearance upon contract award. Interestingly enough. Say you have a new contractor, they bid on a classified contract, say they don't have a facility clearance, the defense security service will not process that facility clearance action unless that contractor is required classified information during that pre-award stage. And sometimes that happens, right? Say they need classified technical specs because they want to produce this widget. But in order to produce the widget, they need the classified side of it to really give an accurate proposal. Sure, they'll be processed before contract award, but ultimately, upon contract award, facility clearance isn't needed, so this is what happens when when that occurs, is that a contractor then must be sponsored for facility clearance. Now, during this whole time, they can perform on the unclassified pieces of the contract. There's absolutely nothing preventing them from doing that. The classified piece, for obvious reasons, cannot be worked on yet so they have to be sponsored for facility clearance and how sponsorship works is either through a government customer so the Air Force say they're the prime we can sponsor them for facility clearance or say they're a subcontractor on another prime mm-hmm. that prime contractor can sponsor them for a facility clearance and when that happens is that the originator of the facility clearance sponsorship whether it's the government or prime contractor that's I forgot to mention also, in the National Industrial Security Program, so you can't have just any contractor sponsor. Right. They have to be part of that club, right. <laughs> essentially, right? They fill out the pr- paperwork. Nowadays, it's all done electronically through the National Industrial Security System, or called NIST. I don't know if those of you listening in are familiar with NIST. The It is the new system of its predecessor Industrial Security Facilities Database, or ISFD, but now all these clearance actions are processed electronically. They go to DSS, which has a processing hub, and then that is gone and routed to the field at DSS. DSS then works with that contractor to get all their paperwork all straightened up. It could involve company paperwork to security clearances of of those at the company, so on and so forth. Now, for more information on what contractors have to go through if i guess you could say if you wanted to put the shoe on the other foot if you want to know the perspective on the dss website it's www.dss.mil they have a resource within that website called the facility clearance orientation handbook this is something again if inquiring (laughs) inquisitive minds if you're curious, want to know what they go through, this handbook shows you what a contractor has to go through. But until that facility clearance is granted, classified performance cannot start. Now, the DSS issues interim facility clearances. Classified performance can be begin at that point, but it all depends on the requirements of the contract. If you have special caveats on the contract, such as maybe ComSec, restricted data, or any other situation that a final facility clearance is needed, then maybe you just have to wait. But typically, if it's an interim facility clearance and there's none of those, we'll say, special caveats or special access restrictions, mm-hmm. contract performance can begin, but it also is also imperative to realize that it is an interim. At any time, if something happens, you know, it's an interim for a reason, mm-hmm. because stuff is being processed in the right. background, right? Something can happen, and that interim can be declined. So it's always something to keep in the back of your mind. Sure, they can begin work, but keep cognizant that they're working on a Monday and say three weeks from that Monday something happens and classified performance has to stop until whatever issue is taken care of or until a final is granted.
1: In October, a memo came out from Defense Pricing and Contracting regarding the use of the National Industrial Security Program Contract Classification System within Wide Area Workflow So when should teams start using this system? I love this question.
0: This is a, we'll say NCCS is a system that the information protection security community has known for for quite some time. It took a while for this notification to the acquisition world to hit the ground, right? Though before I answer this question, I I do want to stress to everyone that I'm here speaking on behalf of Air Force Material Command, our MAGCOM. What I say, right now, does not apply to the entire Air Force, because you are all potentially part of different match comms, you may be handling the system differently. But to to really understand what this system is, it's something, think about, we talked about the 254 process previously in this conversation, right? How there's multiple coordinations going on. Think about how that's happening right now. It's sent through email or if you have someone that doesn't prefer email maybe print it and put on their desk mm-hmm. it's not kept track you know i would love you for ask yourselves a que- ask yourself this question right now how long is it taking to get one of these forms processed is anybody keeping track of this some maybe others most likely not it's all manual mm-hmm. it's caveman like right. right so nccs was developed years ago still in the process of being developed to automate this process, Mm -hmm. to make it paperless. Now, there may be times where you have to have paper copies, such as I alluded to before, these 254s could be classified. Again, exception, not the rule. Obviously, if it's classified, you're not gonna be using NCCS. NCCS is on the NipperNet. Let me stress that, if it's a classified DD Form 254, do not (laughs) process it on the NipperNet. That would cause a security violation. But as far as using the system, speaking solely for AFMC is that we're working on how to implement this system in the field. AFMC has a complex acquisition structure. The way NCCS was developed quite doesn't meet AFMC needs now, but we're working with various stakeholders to include soon to be conversations with the acquisition community and other stakeholders in the system to see how AFMC can adequately and efficiently use the system properly. The last thing as a match common from my position that I want to do is to say you know what now acquisition knows about it, go. Knowing some of the issues that are in that system, that is not fair. And I have a feeling if I did that, I would be a walking target out of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio, and someone will be behind a tree ready to throw a rock at my head because they said this system does not work. So what we're doing is we're gonna coordinate from the top down to see how we could manage a system that's in process with the goal of a slow rollout. We have to do a slow rollout because of the, now, the known issues that I know about that um, I actually will not get into on this particular call, but to see, okay, well this particular, as some of you may know, AFMC is organized in centers as opposed to other MACCOMs, we're a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But start with maybe some smaller centers or other centers that we know may be easier to say, okay, hey, we got the management structure all tied down. Mm-hmm. Start using it for a couple months. Let me know how it's working for you. What kind of errors are you getting? is this working for you? If we have success, and I'll be watching that closely, then we'll move on to the next one. And then, and so on and so forth. And in the midst of that, we're going to be, as a MAGCOM creating user guides, and will most likely be per center, because we do have such an a, a complex structure that we cannot, as I see it now, standardize implementation of the system, because we want to allow for the centers To have flexibility the last thing i want to do is completely upend an acquisition professionals process because i want to standardize it i want to build in flexibility because our whole goal think about the agile acquisition we need to be quick this could slow things down if we're not careful so we're working on getting all the proper necessary whatever you want to call it parties involved implementing it slow as they you, you probably heard the whole everyone loves these taglines lines crawl walk and run hopefully when we get to the run stage this will all be a, a distant memory right. but as of now uh, those four again speaking for afmc we're in compliance with everything as far as implementation because we are still figuring it out and from my position i'm helping with that i have access to resources And I can spend that time to look into it, whereas maybe some acquisition professionals other security professionals, you have other things to do every day. Mm -hmm. My job for the MAGCOM, this is one of my jobs, and I am more than happy to support everybody with it. So right now, I say, as I say to everybody in AFMC, when these questions come up, relax. (laughs) It's okay. We're in compliance. We're working on it. But maybe this time next year, we will be all good to go.
1: So, what are some things you would suggest contracting personnel look out for in regards to industrial security in their contracts?
0: One of the key things is, and I, I know I've been saying this the whole time, is you always self the self reflection, right? Is this a classified contract? Just ask yourself that question. Is there really classified access needed? Some of the red flags, for example, if a contract solely needs access to NipperNet and government systems. I'm talking no classified network access. They don't need documents. No, it is not a classified contract. Yes, access to government networks require an investigation, Mm -hmm. but the result of that investigation is not a classified eligibility situation. It's something else. So that's something to think about Mm -hmm. where I call it a flag but it really comes down to if if classified access is really needed and there are other things such as if you know contractors need CAC cards to get on base and it's all on classified work but they need a CAC card Mm -hmm. that is not a classified contract (laughs) it is no 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 it is not a classified contract again investigations are needed Mm -hmm. but it's processed a little bit differently so those are things just to keep hold but if you do have questions as an acquisition professional on whether or not that contract is, is classified or not, because say you're reviewing statements of work and you're looking at the 254, and because you're, you're now part of that acquisition cadre that has been sensitized to the security world, always go back to the program office. Ask that program manager. Hey, w- what are they going to be doing? Are they going to be making a classified widget? Do they have access to CIPR, to JWix? whatever? They would be the ones to really tell you as the acquisition professional if the requirements are really
1: needed, if it's really there. So, where should contracting workforce go for more information on industrial security?
0: Well, like anything, you always say start at the lowest levels, right? So, every program office, at least in the Air Force, typically has a security professional working for the program office or maybe the MATCHCOM or maybe a wing or maybe a squadron, but seek out your security professionals, know who they are, Mm -hmm. ask them the questions. You should have, okay, typically, I'll, I'll put air quotes around typically because every other matchcom is different from AFMC, and I know there are others listening out there that could be outside the AFMC family, mm-hmm. but there will be that security professional that will know maybe the answer to your question, or be able to provide you where you could find an answer to your question. I always say, you know, we're security, we're here to help, Really, we are, you you know, and I've been in a position before, and I joke with other of my colleagues, you know, I started my career at the Army. And and I remember starting in that office, and people knew I was security, and I'm walking down the hall, and this gentleman looks at me and does a complete beeline (laughs) and runs. (laughs) And I don't know if it was the fear of security, but we really shouldn't be feared, we're here to help you. Right. But you could start with your security points of contact, know who they are, know who the security managers are, the assistant security managers, all the way to maybe your chiefs or your directors, How your MAGICOM is structured. Other resources, we always say Google, the internet is full of them, but that DSS website, the www.dss.mil, that has a
1: lot of information for you. Well, just to foot-stomp uh, your point about reaching out to the security professionals, so to the contracting folks out there, just like you reach out to pricing and, and legal and your technical folks, know who your security professional um, in your in your program offices or who you would go to. Um, talk to them even before issues pop up because they'll be more apt to be resources to help you um, when things do pop up, um, and I will say I've worked with with great um, security folks out there in the field, and they've if they didn't know the answer, they were always willing to go help track down the answer. So um, it's another great resource that we need to reach out to and make part of your our teams. So, well, Joyce, I appreciate you being on the podcast today. This
0: was great. Uh, any opportunity that I could promote security, I'm I'm all for it. Call me a security nerd, but um, for lack of a better term, but I'm proud of that. I'm really proud of that, that's calling myself that. And just to say again, thank you. Any questions that any you may have, secure, the security community, we're here to support you. Acquisition and security, I say, we're those cousins. We're, we're, we're different. But when it comes to certain things, we're together. We're family. And when it comes to a classified contract, you have your acquisition side of it, you have your security side of it, and that classified contract cannot work without those two sides working together. So thank you again. I appreciate you reaching out to our office.
1: Anything you need in the future, we're willing to assist. If you have suggestions for topics or people to interview or feedback on the podcast, you can submit those at thecontractingexperience at gmail.com. I want to thank you all for listening to the Contracting Experience podcast. Until next time, keep connecting to the world around you.